In the last year, a number of auto companies have announced huge investments into the development of electric vehicles, with some committing to transforming their entire fleet over to clean energy. In the past, one of the biggest hurdles consumers and businesses had to overcome when switching to electric power was the question of battery life. Drivers were worried, and understandably so, about whether their car's battery would be powerful enough to get them where they needed to go, hassle-free. Well, the answer is yes, and it's thanks to some interesting software that a cleaner future is possible. By unleashing what we call depth of discharge and top of charge on a battery, just with software, we can add five to 10% range. And so that may not sound a lot, but if you have a car that's 300 miles, now it's 330 miles, that trip to the beach is no problem. Anil Paryani is an EV industry veteran and pioneer who possesses more than 30 patents, and currently he serves as the CEO of Automotive Power, or AMP for short. He's committed to getting the most out of an electric vehicle. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Anil explains what really controls an EV battery's capacity and overall performance, and he reveals why you just might not need that fast charging station after all. IT Visionaries is created by the team at Mission.org and brought to you by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Innovate fast, empower every employee, and scale with confidence from anywhere with a customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform. Welcome everyone to another episode of IT Visionaries. And today we have the CEO of AMP. AMP stands for Automotive Power, Anil Paryani. Anil, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Thanks, Albert. All right. Now we've interviewed people that are in battery technology, but you're on the other side of battery technology. You're in the charging technology. Talk a little bit about what exactly is AMP. What do you guys do? Yeah, no, great question. We actually look at energy management on mobility applications and really what we define as mobility is anything that moves people and goods. And definitely the latter is a big transformation that's happened in the post-COVID world. And when we say energy management, we're really talking about a convergence of two uh, separate technologies, which have always been thought of separate, and that's battery management and charging. And what we're doing at AMP is kind of looking at energy management holistically and asking ourselves, why do I have a separate battery management system and why do I have a separate charging system on a vehicle? All right. So I want to dive right into that for those of <laughs> our audience members that maybe they're, you know, they've only been in software that they don't know too much about hardware, electrical engineering. I'd love to hear your reasoning for this because I, I, I remember as a consumer looking at electric vehicles and I saw like, oh, fast charging. And I was like, oh yeah, why would I not want that? Why is it a software application? It's, it, it would seem to me like to the casual non-electrical engineer that that would be a physics thing, like science, like it charges, the physics of it would dictate how fast anything charges, but it's not, it's a software thing. Talk about how it works, like how does software influence charging? Yeah, well, there's definitely a lot of hardware challenges to fast charge, but just, um, and I could talk about those from the software standpoint, uh, what ends up happening when you fast charge a lithium battery cell too fast, you get something called lithium plating, Lithium plating basically removes uh, amp hour capacity that's available on the subsequent discharge. So you basically degrade the battery in a much more accelerated fashion. So the software needs to understand how fast can I go before I get lithium plating. And we really want to run to the edge and not go over the edge. And I kind of use this analogy. If you're, if you're a race car driver and you're going around a turn, you're at 
uh, 1.2 G's. And if I go to 1.21 G's, I am going to spin out. And that's really what the battery management system tries to do is just run to that edge. So then that's also, a, it's, is it based on what sensors? Like it's, I mean, how does it know that lithium palladium is about to occur, but not occur? Uh, yeah, no, it's a great, great question. It's a little bit of a dark art, but yeah, basically unlike a gasoline tank where you could put a gauge in and measure the insides of a cell, although a lot of people are looking at doing things with uh, fiber optics to do exactly that. Uh, we can measure uh, three things externally of a battery cell, and that's like voltage, current, and temperature. And basically looking at those characteristics, we can then ascertain uh, when we think the onset of lithium plating will occur. And, and realize like it's not necessarily a digital thing. Like I described, there is a little bit of a gray area. In some cases, we might for some applications, intentionally degrade the battery because it's a, uh, let's say if you were in a, in a race application and you are wanting to fast charge, you may not care about uh, future cycles. So there's a little bit of uh, nuances depending on that and the application. So talk a little bit about what the goal is for AMP because it sounds like you're solving a problem of what I actually am most fearful of. So <laughs> yeah, when people talk about electric vehicles, they usually, the people that are most pro-electric vehicle, in my opinion, are typically short haul drivers. Yeah. They're urban drivers. They don't drive very far. But I'll tell you this. I looked at the Model Y. I'm exactly 143 miles to the beach. That means a round trip beach run for me is right at, you know, 286. I think the capacity on the Model Y is like 300. I'm like, dude, that's kind of cutting it short. That means I have to stop somewhere and charge. And I'm thinking to myself, well, what does that mean? Where do I have to go to charge? How long does it have to be on the charger? It's like, oh, dude, this sounds like a headache. It's easier to have a gas vehicle at this point. Yeah. Talk about what fast charging, I mean, that certainly would unlock that for me, but talk about why is that not widely available? I feel like it should be widely available, but I don't understand. Like, fill us in. Oh my God. Okay. This is a long story. So first off, you're too far from the beach. You need to move a few miles closer. So yes. <laughs> you'll go there more often. <laughs> That's the easier solution. No, but um, yeah, fast charging is something that is needed to make the average consumer feel really comfortable taking the step. And I would imagine you're that far to the beach, you probably would like to go a handful of times to the beach and you feel content and happy with your life, right? And really, if you think about it, what, that's what fast charging does. When people see the fast charging stations for an electric vehicle, it's more of, oh, I feel comfortable. I can buy this. And I know in case I need to fast charge, they are there. Now, the truth be known, and the initial electric vehicle owners tend to be more affluent. They tend to be homeowners. They tend to then just plug in at home like you do your cell phone. And in that use case, a lot of them have never even gone to a fast charge station, even though they went in saying, hey, I need to test a supercharge station for me to feel comfortable. And they've never had a need to use it. So it's really a, a five to 10 times a year thing that's used for the average consumer. Yeah. So for, like, for me, I'll tell you right now, I'm a, so I'm an avid surfer. I, even though I don't live near the beach, I know it's a terrible decision making on my part, you know, like trying to take care of my kids, I guess. I don't know what I'm doing. But <laughs> I would love to just, you know, so when the way I live is if there's a, a hurricane, because I live in North Carolina, there's a hurricane, it's going to send swell. So there's even times where I'm like not prepared. So yeah. if I had an electrical vehicle, it'd be very inconvenient. But you guys have like goals. Um, talk about some of the goals and thresholds of what you're trying to accomplish for charging. Yeah. And then we, and I think there's things that we, we're technically simply trying to take something that charges in 45 minutes. We want to bring that down to 30. I mean, not say we want to, we bring that down to 30 minutes or less. So we take just with software controls and good hardware on the vehicle, 
we reduce charge time. We also, uh, you had mentioned about the use case, hey, I'm, I'm 300 miles and it's 280 miles. Basically, by unleashing what we call depth of discharge and top of charge on a battery, just with software, we can add 5 to 10% range. And so that may not sound a lot, but if you have a car that's 300 miles, guess what? Now it's 330 miles. That trip to the beach is no problem, right? And just in case now it's a quick charge. I would say, though, what's needed on the mass market is if you surf, you're going to be at the beach for two hours, maybe four hours. If there's a, what we call a level two charger at the beach, maybe you get front row parking on the sand. Um, few charge stations, you're there for two hours. You're going to return, you know, 40 to 50 miles of range just by being plugged in at your beach, at, you know, at the beach. And that's literally solves that problem. And that's very affordable for society to do. So talk about how, you got started in this. Uh, we've seen that you've clearly been a part of a lot of research. It's a list of patents that you were a part of. Talk about your career into batteries. How did you get involved? And tell us, you know, how you got, I don't know if you love batteries. I'm assuming you do, but <laughs> give us an idea of how you got started in this field. Yeah. You know, it's a great question. I'll just kind of go back in history. So when I got out of, uh, or actually when I was in high school, what I wanted to do is play basketball for the Lakers. Unfortunately, I was about a foot too short and maybe just a step too slow. So I'm like, okay, let me come up with a different plan. I love video games. Um, and I also love cars. And I feel like sometimes God sets a fork in the road for you and it changes your lifetime. And for me, when I got out of school, uh, I ended up getting an opportunity to join Honda and I ended up doing battery testing for Honda. And that really kind of forged my career. It was a, in college, I ended up joining a solar car team and that was really, a, I was an electrical engineer, so loved cars. There's a convergence of all my ideals. So that ended up being perfect for me. And, I, you know, I had a friend say this to me. He's all, Neil, you're unusual. The fact that you stayed in this career basically your whole life. And most people don't get a chance to do that. And I feel, you know, reading a lot of books, if you look at like Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, the timing was everything. And I feel for me, uh, coming up in the 90s, doing electric vehicles, I was very blessed to get early access to, you know, the, the initial lithium battery technology. And I ended up at Honda, that's really all I did. I did, I tested batteries. I did that uh, every single day for seven years. Exactly. Uh, I joined April 5th in uh, 1993 Honda. I left April 5th, the year 2000 and seven years of battery testing. And there's a thing where you say, you want to get really good at something. There's a threshold of 10,000 hours. So do that for 10,000 hours and then you're an expert at it. Whether that's dribble a basketball or play video games or in my case, uh, watch batteries charge and discharge. So has it always, has your career always been focused on doing exactly that, which is decreasing charge times or have you been focused on different areas of the battery? I mean, I don't even know how many areas of a battery there is a study, but it's clearly you have a lot of years of discipline. Well, I'll say this, I, we call like something battery utilization. There's three areas. There's what we talked about, reducing charge time is one. Increasing runtime or range is another one, and increasing cycle life or lifetime is a third area. And so, uh, AMP, we're really focused at unleashing the battery through software and electronics. So, not, don't add more battery cells because that uh, decreases safety, decreases efficiency, and decreases performance. But instead, hey, let's put good software and electronics. And this is part of Tesla's magic on why. Why does a Model 3 and a Model S go further on a charge than competitors? Um, there's a little bit of nuances to that. Yeah. No, di dive in. Dive in on how, how, how that is. 
Well, I do also have to say this is kind of another lucky path that I had. Uh, I mentioned I left Honda in the year 2000. That was the height of the dot-com boom. I was um, a little bit uh, disenfranchised because Honda and other OEMs were really abandoning electric vehicles right when the advent of a lithium-ion battery technology was coming, coming into market. I ended up getting a job at Corning in the fiber optic industry, did that for a year and a half. This is the only time I really left batteries and electric vehicles. And I was really removed from the end application, which was telecommunications. And it was really actually kind of interesting because it allowed me to just write software. And I wrote software and I wrote software and I did that for a year and a half. So coming out of that job, I had this battery test experience and I had this software experience. So I was like, hey, what do I do with this? So I ended up getting a job at a company called AeroVironment, um, which is the father of electric vehicles. And for those who don't know, AeroVironment was contracted by General Motors, and they ended up coming up with a car called the Impact. And that really led to the Zev mandate. And there's lots of movies like Who Killed Electric Car. They were really instrumental. Tesla ended up using a lot of that technology for the original Roadster. But that really you know, forged a path for me to get into Tesla in 2007, being one of the only battery management experts in the world who can really implement something end-to-end, who understood software and understood batteries. Um, it gave me like kind of a key advantage to help Tesla out in that area. So that's pretty wild. You actually went through the cycle of, hey, we're becoming less interested in your primary skill set. And now you're writing this like, hey, we are very interested in your primary skill and knowledge base. Yeah, yeah, that is right. And it was uh, super fulfilling being at Tesla because being in the EV industry for so long and not seeing it to fruition, I got a chance to see that through at Tesla. So give us an idea of how, you know, you're typically when, when we talk to people that engineer in like, uh, you know, yes, there's a software component, but there's also hardware here, batteries. You know, you're working at a company that's at the forefront. You've always loved vehicles. This is a highly acclaimed vehicle company, electric EV company. You're part of it. Yet you also had, it sounds like there was some type of urge or itch to say, hey, I want to, I want to do my own thing. Because you're already in your dream state scenario. Well, it sounded it would, to an outsider, you'd be already in your dream state scenario. What were you thinking as you were potentially doing more research, unlocking? How did your mindset change to be like, hey, I'm going to work and help this company accelerate, but, or I'm going to help all companies accelerate? It's kind of like what you ended up doing at AMP. Give us an idea of what you were thinking as you, which, what were you uncovering as you made this decision? Yeah, well, I'll say I, I feel very blessed and fortunate. Like when I got a job at Honda, it was a dream job. When I went into Aero Environment, it was a dream job. And then, of course, when I went into Tesla, it was a dream job. And I feel, you know, for your listeners out there, I think, you know, a lot of them are executives and that had those opportunities. For those who haven't, I think in my case, there's a certain passion that I brought in about this certain field. So I think for those who want a certain dream job, you just can't show up to an interview and say, hey, uh, hire me. There's got to be a lot of passion. And, and I tell my son this, if you do something you love, you never have to work a day in your life. And so that's sort of been one of my mottos going forward. So talk about that transition, you know, when you decided to finally say like, okay, was it because you knew something now that was not prevalent in other systems where like, hey, I can bring this to a different market? Or were you thinking to yourself, hey, I've figured something out that I want to, you know, call my own. Talk a little bit about that decision to say, hey, I'm going to engineer you know, the difference between saying I'm an engineer for a company and I'm an engineer for my company. Okay. It's a great question. And my dad always told me, and even while I was at Tesla, he's like, Neil, you're very smart. I'm sorry, I'm not doing his Indian accent well. 
you know, um, but you should start your own company. And it's really hard. I think most people who have a good job with a good salary, 90% of people are content uh, with that. And I tell our employees and the, our interviewees, really 10% of the world is made to really do a startup. And it took me to hit some milestones in my life. My kids also got older. It allowed me to take a little risk. And not everyone can afford that risk. Not everyone wants to afford that risk. So for me, in 2017, um, left Faraday Future. It's another EV startup. and trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I said, you know what? I've kind of accomplished a lot of things. But there's one thing that I felt was unfulfilled. And I feel like there's three, ideally, there's three reasons why someone would want to work. You know, the first reason is, of course, you want to make money. Yeah. Right. So that's what happens to most people. You know, okay, I got to make money. I got to get a job. Um, second reason, is, and what you talked about, if you can do something you enjoy, then it's not really work. Right. So that's like, hey, now that ends up being a dream job. Right. If you do something you enjoy. The third thing is, hey, can I give back to society and leave the earth better off than when I inherited it? And one thing, and Tesla, you know, a lot of kudos to Tesla, but one thing that, they haven't done is brought that technology to where it's needed most. And my, for my parents were born in India. I would visit India when I was young and we had these things in California called first stage smog alerts. And when I'd go to India, I'd be like, wait a second, this is like negative fifth smog alert because it is like 1000 times worse than what we experienced in LA in the eighties. So really what I wanted to do with AMP was to bring Tesla-like technology to where it's needed the most. And so we have a customer base in, in Asia and Southeast Asia, and specifically in India and Vietnam, where the pollution is really bad and where they can benefit from uh, battery management and charging technology. And there's no reason why someone needs to drive a gas-powered, a diesel-powered rickshaw or scooter in those, that part of the world. It, the technology for electrification is superior and more cost-effective than what you find with internal combustion engines. So we want to make that stuff obsolete. This is a great point because I have not visited India, although I did do a global trip once and I was in Jakarta. And I know Jakarta is among oh, the yeah. most polluted places. And I remember there was a guy there I was working with. He was from New Delhi. And he said, New Delhi is actually worse. And I couldn't believe it. I was like, I think Jakarta is the most polluted place I've ever been in my life. And he said, no, you haven't been to New Delhi. And he was explaining what New Delhi was like. I don't know what you've experienced yourself, but I do know that a lot of um, Asian countries, for example, the heavily densely populated Asian countries, they not only rely on scooters and tuk-tuks and things like that, but they're all two-strokes and two-strokes are notoriously worse polluters than a four-stroke motor. Yeah. India has gotten better, but just roughly when you go there and you're there outside all day and at the end of the day, you come home and you blow your nose. Sorry, I don't want to gross out your audience, but it comes out black, Jeez. right? Just to give the rest of the world a perspective of how bad it is. And you know, you know you're, you're not filtering everything. So all that stuff is uh, really you know, damaging people. And you know, like that part of the world is an emerging world. It's now you're no longer worried about putting food on your table, which was a problem you know, decades ago in that part of the world. Now, the affluency of that society is there's an awareness. And one thing, if you look at what COVID's done, although, you know, many, you know, millions of people have died in the world. And after every pandemic, humans get stronger 
and they realize, you know, the resiliency that needs to happen. But you think about this. Many people in that part of the world saw blue skies for the first time in their lives. That's insane. Yeah. There's an environmental awareness that's rising in the, those parts of the world that was never seen before. And, you know, and obviously for AMP, this is again, a blessing in some ways like, Hey, there's COVID tailwinds that uh, we're really pulling uh, our technology to those parts of the world and beyond. So give us an idea. Is AMP purely a software play? Because you've, I also have seen you cited in a couple articles about battery swapping. Uh. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. I definitely, there was a, a, it was confusing, but there was definitely um, a news television you know, show on battery swapping. And we, I was talking more about fast charging. And really, uh, we could talk about that. Um, but for AMP, to answer your first question, we can't just put great software on bad hardware to, to unleash the energy and power. Right. So there is a significant hardware technology that we uh, deploy on vehicles to really also make vehicles more efficient. And I'll just... Give kind of an example. You can imagine like, hey, I turn on a light bulb, I got uh, light. But if you remember those old incandescent bulbs where you were burning 60 watts of heat and old battery management systems, older charger systems, when you just plug in, you're burning 60 watts of heat. So simply by us putting more efficient hardware out there, it allows us to recapture more range. So definitely there's a key hardware aspect to our technology. And that's the, uh, is that the BMS architecture? Both the BMS and the charging and also bidirectional charging and how to not just charge more efficiently, but when to charge more efficiently as far as understanding the cost of energy is key to our uh, business plan. Gotcha. Give us an idea of how, like, because this business is a little different, you know, most of the people that have been on the show are in the software industry. So I think most people have a general concept of our, our audience does is like, you know, if I ship software, host it on server, create a user identity management system, I can ship it pretty easily. But here you're making a hardware component. It doesn't look like it's sold, you know, like I can't add one just to my car. If this is something that the OEMs need to install on the vehicle before it goes off the factory line. Exactly. And so you have to figure out how to make this. Then you have to also demonstrate, is it like sold pre-assembled? Like you sell it like that to the OEMs or the OEMs licensing the technology and then they install it and fabricate in all the fabrication or whatever they need to do when they put the vehicle, put it inside of a vehicle. Yeah, no, it's a great question. So cars and vehicles are very hard to do. It requires a lot of coordination of suppliers, moving parts. We basically have to be on... Um, grounds, you know, formation of the program. Um, And basically when we're in the pencil mode, we have to get in with the OEMs, with the battery pack manufacturers and optimally design the battery management and charging system into the vehicles at that point in time. So it's not something we can retrofit in. It has to be on the ground up. You can't just show up with a housing and just be like, hey, install this. Like, dude, Yeah, (laughs) we already got our assembly process done. Like we can't use this. Yeah, I I wish. And, you know, I got to say being in the hardware business, it took us a tough journey, let's say, on the fundraising initially with the traditional Silicon Valley uh, venture firms. Uh, we were bootstrapped for several years, and we actually ended up getting an A-list group of investors. But the really what's happened is the mindset of the world and the investment community now uh, veers uh, hardware and manufacturing as 
sexy in the in the recent marketplaces. So I think 2018, 2019, um, hardware and manufacturing was thought of like, let's just go to China and do it. Let the US just do software. And I think that those frameworks of thought have really turned 180 degrees around. So give us an idea of what it was like the first time you walked into an OEM and you were to, you know, show your system. All right. <laughs> Where, I mean, give us an idea where they were like, Anil, you're crazy. This is BS or this doesn't <laughs> won't work. Like, give us an idea of what that pitch is like, because there's something about, and I'd love to hear your interpretation of it, but when we've had people in the past come on and talk about supply chain technology. So let's imagine I'm in like food manufacturing. There's just a high level of skepticism because the way it's been described in the past from previous guests is that the buyer has all these constraints in their mind. Like they've already identified all these things that need to be true in order for your system to even integrate into their supply chain. And so they said that it's very difficult to get them to think outside of that. Like they're already thinking like, this is why it cannot work. And more so than maybe like a customer that could buy something direct off the shelf and use it. Like they can't use it. They're thinking about like, how does it install? How does it test? How does it QA? I want to know what your experience was like the first time you brought it to someone. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's great. So um, I got to say, California is a very big state in the U.S., but it's a very small world in the electric vehicle world. And myself and my team, just having a little bit of pedigree from Tesla, uh, we, we got pulled into the what we call new age EOEMs. Awesome. And, you know, Tesla forged, you know, this movement. And California, there's about seven major EOEMs that you could say are trying to be like Tesla. So uh, AMP, we probably are a supplier to every single one of them because there was a little bit of street cred that we had the fact that you know our team was a lot of guys from Tesla and we've done it before, done it better than other people have. So uh, in some ways, it was very easy to the EOEMs. Now what's Hard, what you described, and we're trying to move our company to the next stage and go to the traditional OEMs. And in that case, there is a little bit of skepticism. Wait, you're a small startup. Uh, you have only 70 employees. Oh, you just got a little bit of funding. Oh, you don't own your manufacturing. You know, So right now we are in the stage of uh, partnering with good companies. Um, and we just recently had a follow-up investment with a large, uh, really a well-known German tier one supplier called Hella. So really have a philosophy of one plus one equals three, or in some cases you hear one plus one equals 11. Uh, we're not really out there to do this on our own, but let's bring good people with us that will add to our value proposition. And then for us, it's not just the new age EOEMs, which uh, I think a lot of them are going to thrive, yeah. no question, but a lot of them we know will probably fail, but the existing players, existing traditional OEMs is definitely on our roadmap to uh, provide really great products to. Yeah. So let's talk about the future of electric vehicles. We've seen some of the the non-EV companies, right? Ford, they launched their Mustang EV. There's more companies coming out with them. Curious, what do you think that's going to do to the market? Like right now, EVs, I feel like, you know, beyond the obvious, like more is going to better service product services is going to get cheaper. What are some of the things that you can see in the future that maybe the casual automotive aficionado just doesn't see quite yet? Because I, th I think you're right. EVs are going to, every manufacturer is going to have one. Every OEM is going to have one at minimum. Yeah, no, it's great. Okay. So what you've seen, and I'll just go back in time. And, and, you know, I was at Honda um, and 
all of the EOEMs or OEMs before Tesla, how do they think of electric vehicles? So Honda came out with a Fit EV, mm-hmm. GM came up with a Spark EV. You know, then they said, okay, well, let me have a Volt, let me have a Bolt. Um, Nissan has a Leaf. Yep. And you look at all of those vehicles; those are what we would call in the general, especially in California, those are econo boxes. They're very small. Yeah. <laughs> they don't, and they have, and they have bad range. Very small. Yeah. Poor range and not like the most sexy vehicles, although they serve a good practical purpose for, let's say like an older generation who doesn't really care about the car. They just want a good practical way to commute. What Tesla did is they said, well, no, let me come up with a roadster that like looks great, super fast. The Model S looks great. You know, it's a, it's a sexy car to be in with. Right. And then the Model 3 came out and you know, people desired those cars and what that did, and sorry, no offense to, let's say our future OEM customers, but it kind of slapped them in the face and said, Hey, if you want to go in the electric vehicle market, don't come up with an econo box, come up with something that people really want. So now what are you seeing from Ford? And actually I did this little LinkedIn post. I'm like, don't call it a Mustang. I'm a sports car guys. And I want to see, I don't want to see an SUV called a sports car, but the Mach-E is a great car. It's stands head, head and shoulders with the Model Y. So, you know, great performance. And it's, but the Mustang, hey, it's, Ford is like, hey, let's come out with this exciting EV. What is GM coming out with now? They're not coming out with the Spark 2. They're coming out with the Hummer. Yeah. Right. So there's some great products. And, you know, I think you're going to see an awakening by the traditional OEMs. Now, there was a, there was some buzz in the past where Tesla, you know, even hinted at making a, Freight trucks, long haul freight trucks. Yeah. Right. But then I, when that happened, the first thing I thought was there was a charging problem because these things, everything's done here on time. Yeah. And so that vehicle is going to have to suck up huge power. Yeah. And it's going to need to have charging. Like otherwise yeah. it can't do its job. Yeah. So I'm going to take off my CEO hat and kind of tell you what I think society needs from an uh, environmental standpoint and energy security standpoint. Yeah. And Long haul, and we, we have, why do we have long haul diesel? Why do we have uh, this problem where we got to electrify our long haul vehicles? And that's because our rail system in the U.S. is antiquated. Yeah. We are a very large uh, country, uh, you know, geographically. So it's hard to uh, build up that infrastructure. And, you know, right now there's a massive amount of money being poured in an infrastructure. And rail is not getting uh, its justice. And the reason why I say rail is, um, you know, I am an environmentalist. Uh, you cannot beat rail for transportation of goods. Yeah. The metal on metal wheels like you have on train is extremely low rolling resistance. And the aerodynamics, I can put 100 or more cars on a, on, in a row. There's no aerodynamics loss. Um, and right now you got to see, like, in, you know, we talked about India, India has an electrified rail system, right? It's been third world, but for 50, 60 years, they were able to do it. Um, Europe is all electrified. Why can't the U S electrify rails? If we built up our train infrastructure and I, and I feel like I put the crystal ball, it's really, at the end of the day, it's about energy efficiency. What's the lowest, lowest cost operating costs I can transport goods. Right. If simply, uh, the Biden administration really put some of this funds to electrifying the rails and maybe a little bit more rail tracks, things like long haul trucking would become obsolete. And I'm not, I don't want to like sabotage any business plans. This is like, might take 
10, 20, 30 years to do, but it's something we should be putting energy in right now. Well, and I don't think you're sabotaging business plans because, you know, history has shown time and time again that technology and innovation, yes, it might move the money from one industry to another, but it never truly kills jobs. Otherwise, we would have less jobs today than ever before. But that's not true. Yeah. Today's the most modern society, you know, technologically advanced time in the history of human beings, yet we still have plenty of jobs. That's right. So I'm with you. I think when I think of long haul rail, I think of, you know, being from a, of Asian descent, being in Taiwan, seeing the rail system that takes you just about everywhere on the island. I know Taiwan is very small, but to your point, they've also had to figure out a way to get around highly mountainous areas. So to ensure the movement of people and goods can still continue. And in Taiwan, there's not a lot of big trucks. Yeah. I mean, but like if I were to drive, I don't know, you know, in California, I know there are, but like 95 corridor, which is connects, you know, New York through DC, like the amount of trucks that go through there is, is pretty phenomenal. Like obviously yeah. goods need to go up and down that corridor nonstop. Yeah. So we could talk about long haul electrification. It, it is hard from the infrastructure standpoint. And I mean, it's, you know, maybe though it's, it's an easier step to take than electrifying our rail. But I, I think, you know, now's the time to do that. And but short haul electrification is the answer, right? So you can imagine like the perfect scenarios have all these long haul electric, you know, trains dropping off goods. And then you have these short haul Amazon trucks or FedEx trucks pick up the goods and transport these goods without any uh, emissions and zero CO2. What's the, like the minimum charging requirement that these companies are now coming to you with? Like, are they saying like, hey, I need you to be able to go from, take my battery from, you know, E to F, <laughs> like full capacity in this time frame? Are they starting to come to you with like more requirements, like pushing the requirements? Like, hey, Anil, the old AMP system's okay, but I need this now. Like, is, talk about like the evolution of the requirements, you know, on your, on your company. Yeah. And let me, let me talk then also like fast charging since that's relevant. This is more on the infrastructure side. So I'll give some metrics. So, you know, when Tesla supercharged stations came out, they were, you know, somewhere around, you know, hundred kilowatts. Now they've doubled that um, in some cases. And so that's, you know, significant power, but to give you a reference, uh, your gas pump that you fill up your gas vehicle with is about four megawatts. So it's, uh, you know, more than 20 times higher power rate. So things like long haul, you know, uh, electrification for trucking needs really megawatt uh, of power delivery and charging. And so it's feasible to do that. We, we have the, it's not a technical reason why we can't do that. It does definitely challenge the grid. Um, and it's something though, uh, AMP is providing technology to supplement. So where do we get those peak power demands from? Sometimes the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow. So we're like, okay, well, let me just run my gas plant or coal plant up. Um, we're really what AMP, what we're trying to set up to do uh, is something called V2G. But you can imagine if there's a mass, and I don't want to say if, when there's a mass adaptation of electric vehicles, there's going to be millions of vehicles plugged in at one time. So now when you need these megawatt spikes, you allow these uh, existing vehicles on the road to supplement uh, the grid and provide that energy and power to where it's needed. Painting a fascinating future, no doubt about it. Anil, I want to say thank you for joining us today on IT Visionaries. But before you go, it is time for the lightning round. 
The Lightning Round is brought to you by the Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Anil, this is where we ask you questions outside of your life and work so our audience can get to know you a little better. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. Are you an automotive racing fan? I am. Yeah, I like F1. You're an F1 fan. Will F1 go to EV vehicles? Well, there is Formula E. It's not quite as well known, but um, I think it'll be, uh, yeah, maybe 30, 40 years before that happens. What is, or what was your current dream car? And what is your current dream car? So like when you were a kid, when you growing up, you wanted to drive a? A Lotus Esprit. And then when I joined Honda, uh, Acura, NSX. There you go. Uh, right now, I have an Integra Type R, so I'll take some consolidation there. <laughs> and I have a Model S, of course. <laughs> what is one piece of technology, not battery-related, that wows you today? Oh, wow. I guess I got to say cell phones. It's been uh, game-changing. I feel like it's Star Trek when I was, when I was a little kid. So, yeah, I'm still, um, although they're, they're ba- their BMS sucks, got to say that. Your battery dies way too early. <laughs> That's what I was going to ask you next. Are you possibly going to get in the cell phone game to improve cell phone charging? Because listen. Oh my God. Uh, yeah. <laughs> everyone needs juice in their cell phone. I've never seen someone like, no, I got plenty. You know what I mean? <laughs> you go to the airport, everyone's like fiending for a, uh, for an outlet. Yeah. I think there's a, uh, I'm not a conspiracist, but uh, I think there's a Samsung and Apple are smart. And I think they are designing these batteries to have two years life. Exactly. So you're forced to upgrade. <laughs> <laughs> Plus they're all glued. They, they glue the bodies. So like you can't easily open them up and swap them. Yeah. Change it out. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. You know, when it comes to your other hobbies, you know, you love racing. What else are you interested in? Like outside of work? Oh, I love basketball. I love skiing. Unfortunately, I have like one knee right now. I'm like, <laughs> uh, but yeah, make it through. I wish I was 20 again, but yeah, I love sports. Uh, that, but that's what also made me become an environmentalist because we would have these first state smog alerts when I was in seventh grade in the eighties and basketball would get canceled. I'd get so pissed. So you're an avid basketball fan. Which, uh, which team do you cheer for the most? Oh, wow. Uh, I, I, yeah, I like the Lakers and uh, long story, but I like Washington wizards. I'm from the Washington area. Yeah. The wizards oh, wow. stink. Yeah. <laughs> They've been terrible for a long time, but we got to ask this question then. Okay. Anthony Davis, he's been out for a while. He's in and out of the lineup. Is he going to come back healthy to make the playoff run? I think it's hard to flip a switch. And I think there's uh, a lot of good teams now in the East that are, I think, are, and even the West that are give Lakers a run. So there you go. It's going to be exciting this postseason. So if you're not a basketball fan, turn on some games. They'll be unpredictable. Listen, I got one more question for you about predicting the future. When is LeBron going to start showing his age? <laughs> I, I think he's losing a little bit of hair. So <laughs> I think it is, but physically, he's unbelievable. So, uh, yeah, uh, unbelievable. And if you look at Tom Brady, uh, there's like nutrition and training and they, yeah, they're, they're going 10 years beyond what's expected. So I, if I predict, I think LeBron could do this till 40. <laughs> wow. Wow. Well, Anil, thank you for joining us today on IT Visionaries. Thanks for sharing your knowledge and what you're doing in battery and battery charging. For those of you guys that want to meet up with Anil, you can find him on the basketball court or in, <laughs> in front of the F1 race. And of course, we look forward to seeing your technology influence EVs throughout the world. I think your, your ultimate goal of helping the whole world clean up, I love it. All right. Thank you, Albert. It's been a pleasure. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce platform. 
the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experiences, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform.